This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. Today, we bust a myth about GP referrals to other specialists and look at the new requirement to see a GP first if you want a cosmetic procedure. A heart-rending New York Times essay by a heart transplant recipient has created worldwide waves. We look at the double-edged sword of preventing rejection. A 15-year study of men with prostate cancer comparing monitoring with surgery with radiation. And the news is actually pretty good. And normalising the menopause. A leading expert in the menopause warns that we are over-medicalising this inevitable transition in women and creating self-fulfilling expectations based on fear. Martha Hickey is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and her research group focuses on menopause and healthy ageing in women. I spoke to Martha earlier. Thank you, Norman. Now, you argue strongly that we're at risk, if not we're already doing it, over-medicalising menopause. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that all women will experience something. So not even like pregnancy, not all women experience. This is something that all women experience. It's a natural transition, will be associated with hormonal changes and can be associated with symptoms. But my profession in gynaecology, certainly, are describing this as an endocrine deficiency disease. In the same way, the diabetes or thyroid dysfunction. So a disease requiring replacement of the hormones that have been lost. But it's not a disease, it's a natural progression in life. It's a natural progression of life. And really what we've discovered is that if you give women who go through menopause potent sex steroids for decades and decades, bad things will happen. Such as? Well, breast cancer would be the main thing. Breast cancer risk is increased with what's called combined menopausal hormone therapy. So that's a progesterone or a progestin combined with an oestrogen. And that risk goes up the longer that you take it. We'll come back to the treatment in a minute. But what you're saying is that some of your colleagues are defining this as a disease. And usually when that happens, the pharmaceutical industry is behind it because you have something that's a disease, you can flog a drug. Well, look, if you've got a drug that half the population have to take, then you're going to make a lot of money. One of the points that you make in a paper in the British Medical Journal, was, which is something we've covered before in the health report for a while, is that there's quite a substantial variation around the world in how women experience menopause. Do we know why that is? No, we've got no idea why that is. And biologically, it seems that women are going through the same process. But experientially and symptomatically, it's very, very different. What is universal is that a proportion of women in this country, it's probably about 20%, won't have any symptoms at all. For those that do, then what they experience is very different in different countries. And really interestingly, they may acquire the risk when they move. So if you grew up in South India, where women don't tend to have hot flushes, and you move to the UK, you might then experience menopause with hot flushes. Is this about expectation? What are we talking about here? It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's obviously about hormones to some extent, but it's also about expectation and context. We can't change the natural hormonal changes of menopause, but you can change the context. So, for example, women have said that the worst time for them to be having menopausal symptoms, hot flushes particularly, is at work because they've been embarrassed and people may make comments about them. So you can say, OK, go and take hormones and then you won't get hot flushes at work. Or you could say, let's change the workplace and make it 
more inclusive and more acceptable and recognise that women may have this temporary period of difficulties with symptoms. What is the role of expectation? Look, it seems to be quite substantial. And I think a good comparison might be about labour and delivery, that we don't try and frighten women before they go and have a baby about what might happen, because we recognise supporting them and giving them confidence is probably helpful. For menopause, it's been shown that women who go into menopause expecting it to be a bad experience are more likely to have a bad experience. So there's a job of society to be done about normalising this? I think so. And really, we know from COVID that we're relying on essential workers in health and education. And we know that most of those are women. We really can't afford to ignore the health and well-being of women as they transition menopause and beyond. For non-binary people who have ovaries, how do they experience menopause compared to people who identify as women? Yeah, I think there's very little known about that. It's a gap and those people may be taking or are likely to be taking other hormones. Can you talk to us about treatments? Well, I think the first thing to say is that most women don't want to take treatment for menopause unless they've got severe symptoms. So it's not menopause treatment. So what are the options in case I need them? For those who do want treatment, we've now got quite a big variety, actually. We've got drug-free treatments that focus around specialised kind of cognitive behaviour therapy, which works on how you respond to the experience of having a hot flush. So it makes them less bothersome or troublesome. And for those who want to take a medication, we've got menopausal hormone therapy, which has been longstanding. I also understand that you've got non-hormonal treatments. Yes, that's right. So they're not as effective as the hormonal treatments, but for women who don't want to take hormones or who can't take hormones, then they're a pretty good option. So in Australia, we don't yet have very new targeted therapies. We don't have them yet. We may have in the next few years. But meanwhile, some of the antidepressants and some drugs used for overactive bladder or for chronic pain also reduce hot flushes. And with hormonal therapy... There was a huge randomised trial, which we covered in detail many years ago on the health report, the Women's Health Study, 60,000 women. And that has created a fear of of hormone replacement therapy. Can you just put that into perspective for us if women need HRT? Yeah, sure. So that, that huge study, the Women's Health Initiative study, was designed to answer the question, does menopausal hormone therapy prevent heart disease? And it didn't do that. It actually increased levels of heart disease in older women. And it also increased breast cancer and stroke. So the trial was stopped early because of these risks. So what we have now is much longer follow-up from that study. And it's it's largely reassuring about younger postmenopausal women. So women are sort of 50 to 59 years in terms of heart disease. But the breast cancer risk is still there. So is there a time limit? If you're going to go on it, is there a time limit? It's a really difficult question, I think, because breast cancer risk does increase, you know, from the from start and it goes gets higher with, with longer use. You can say take it for five years, but the problem with that is when you stop, quite a lot of women will have resurgent symptoms. It's maybe that you're just putting it off. So what I take from what you're saying is this is normal, don't panic, and there are a wide variety of ways to assist. That's right. And there are actually many very positive things about being a postmenopausal woman. So younger women should not be frightened about what's coming. I am reminded of something when I was studying medicine at the University of Aberdeen, doing my gynaecology, and a woman said, it's fantastic being after the menopause. My husband doesn't bother me anymore. (laughs) 
Well, there we go. That and many other things. I'm sure. Martha, thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thanks, Norman. Martha Hickey is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Women's Hospital. This is the Health Report. The boom in PSA, that's prostate-specific antigen blood testing in men, has created a medical dilemma. Because the test is not for prostate cancer, it just indicates a higher risk. And since many men die with prostate cancer rather than from it, especially when it's found due to a PSA test, the dilemma is whether to treat, with risks of erectile dysfunction and incontinence, or bowel and bladder symptoms if you have radiation therapy, or monitor carefully if the cancer is localised and non-aggressive. Last week, the New England Journal of Medicine published a large British study of 80,000 men who had a PSA test, which resulted in 2,000 being diagnosed with prostate cancer, most of whom were followed for 15 years. They either underwent surgery, radiotherapy, or were monitored. The results should help men make what might be one of the most important decisions of their lives. Professor Jenny Donovan of the University of Bristol was one of the researchers. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you very much. Uh, good good afternoon. What were the key findings? So, well, as you said, we followed these men for over 15 years and uh, uh, we had really a good news story. I mean, these men lived uh, a very long time. Only uh, 3% of them uh, died from their prostate cancer over 15 years. And that same uh, low level of mortality or high level of survival was the same whether they had the radio, uh, radical surgery, radical radiotherapy, or the active monitoring treatments. So that's a, a, a really good news story. Which goes we, along we, with what I just said. You die with it rather than from it. Yes. We did find, though, that uh, cancer progression and spread uh, was higher with uh, active monitoring than with uh, the, the surgery and radiotherapy groups. But the numbers were relatively small. That was 9% um, compared with uh, around about 5%. Of course, in the 15 years, monitoring has changed. It's become much more intensive. Yes, yes, it has. And, uh, and of course, what we did see was that uh, one in four of our men on active monitoring didn't need any treatment uh, at all for their prostate cancer during those uh, 15 years. So even with the monitoring strategies that we had, uh, active monitoring was a, was, a, was, a, was a safe treatment for the vast majority of the men. And if, if, even if it did spread, it didn't change your chances of dying, well, at least during that 15-year period? Yes, and, and that was a surprise to most people because we, we saw that difference at 10 years uh, between uh, the, the, the treatment uh, groups, but that didn't translate into, into mortality because the, the course of uh, a lot of these prostate cancers is very slow uh, over time. What about side effects, complications? Yes, uh, well, that's the other side of the story, of course, and, and really important. So we, we asked the men to complete a very detailed questionnaire, uh, and they completed that uh, every year over, over 15 years. And we saw that each treatment approach led to a different profile of these side effects. So for surgery, uh, there was an increase. So surgery, just before you go on, I mean, that's radical prostatectomy. That's removing the whole yes. prostate. removing the whole prostate. And, and, of course, that comes with an increased risk of, of urine leaking, uh, requiring pads, and we showed that uh, one in five men uh, uh, had that um, right, uh, pretty much from the start of the study right way through for 15 years. Surgery also had an impact on sexual function, particularly uh, on men's uh, sex lives in terms of their erections, uh, and so did radiotherapy, but to a lesser degree. So what was the prevalence? Radio- I mean, it's been said that the prevalence of erectile dysfunction is almost universal after a radical prostatectomy. 
Yeah, so it's not quite. I mean, there was some recovery for some men, particularly those who had uh, good sexual function beforehand. So it's not completely uh, um, out of the question that, that, that there's some recovery, but it's pretty pretty minimal, really. Uh, and uh, so, so the men on um, the the men who had surgery had pretty low sexual function throughout, and the other two groups kind of caught them up over time. Uh, the, the radiotherapy impact was less on sexual function, but still present. Uh, and then also the men in the active monitoring uh, group also declined over time in terms of their sexual function, as all men do over time. And radiotherapy? So, well, radiotherapy had uh, some impact on sexual function, but not as much as, as surgery. But there were also some bowel uh, symptoms, and including a, a, a finding late on of, of uh, leakage of, uh, of fecal contents, which uh, we... we uh, we saw for the first time. so that, that And that's because we've uh, followed these men out for 15 years. And again, radiation treatment has changed a lot during that time and has become much more targeted and high pulse. So that may change if you did another 15 years. Yes, we don't know if that finding is particular to our, our type of radiotherapy. Of course, our men had hormones, so that was uh, had more of an effect on, on their sexual function. So yes, modern radiotherapy techniques do, do have less of an impact on, on sexual function and bowel function. So the caveat here is that this is men with localised prostate cancer that hasn't spread, and when you do the biopsy, it's not too aggressive. Yes, I mean, it's our findings are particularly relevant for men with low and intermediate risk prostate cancer, as they're called now. Uh, those are the most common after PSA testing. I mean, if men have higher risk disease or advanced disease, then they need treatment straight away. But for these men with low and intermediate risk localised prostate cancers, they have time to make a decision about what to do about their treatment because, you know, they're going to live long lives. Uh, you know, we showed, uh, as I said, 97% survival at 15 years. So overall, a, a good result and, um, and you've got time to make your mind up. And in fact, my understanding of the statistics in Australia is that 7 out of 10 men with uh, such a prostate cancer choose active monitoring rather than treatment. Yes, and that's that's good news because uh, uh, you know that's changed over time. But there are also uh, probably a large group of men in the intermediate risk group who could also consider active monitoring. Uh, they obviously need to discuss that with their, their clinicians. And what we hope is that uh, clinicians will share the findings of our study with patients and empower patients really to make the decisions that are best for them. You know, weighing up these key issues of uh, slightly more. Um, uh, likelihood of cancer spread with uh, active monitoring, but you know those those um, side effects of treatments with the radical treatments. They're difficult decisions to make, but our study provides a lot of information for men to make those decisions. Thanks for telling us about it. Thank you, Professor Jenny Donovan is at the University of Bristol. A week or so ago, the New York Times published an essay by a heart transplant recipient, Amy Silverstein, who has received two hearts during her life. It was jolting and has caused waves in the United States and elsewhere. The title is My Transplanted Heart, and I Will Die Soon. Amy isn't dying from organ rejection. She's dying because the drug she's on to stop rejection made cancer more likely and more aggressive. In fact, these days, organ rejection is not the major problem it was in the early days of transplantation. Amy Silverstein is bitter that there's been little progress in developing safer anti-rejection drugs. Professor Robert Carroll is a transplant physician at the University of South Australia who has an interest in people who develop cancer after transplantation and whether immune suppression can be better administered. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. How big a problem is this? 
Well, as, as sort of Amy's mentioned and you've mentioned, um, the further we go out after transplant, the, the more common malignancy is, particularly skin cancer in Australia and then other malignancies. But um, a third of transplant recipients will have significant malignancy long term after transplant. But that's many, many years after the initial transplant. And you said, what's the cancer like when they get it? Um, so invariably, it's it's more aggressive. Um, it's progressed to a greater extent in the general population, and that's even with people being followed up regularly. Um, so you're right that um, the tablets and the drugs that people take that they must take to stop organ rejection um, can, over the longer term, uh, increase the risk of malignancy. It's worse than heart transplant recipients. Why is that? So... Um, in general, um, heart transplant recipients uh, receive more immunosuppression um, than kidney transplant recipients and more than liver transplant recipients because um, there's no alternative to um, cardiac failure if you induce rejection. So um, in general, there's a higher dose um, for heart transplants than there is for kidney, than there is for liver, for example. I thought it was more that I thought it was also that it created more of an immune response, but it's simply that if your kidney fails, you go on, you can go back onto dialysis. That, that yeah, is, I, I, in years gone by, people used to think that it probably or possibly was more immunogenic, but I think um, it's more about the safety profile and, and, and not risking any cardiac failure or cardiac damage because there is an alternative um, like there is for hemodialysis. I mean, the drugs used can be pretty brutal. Yeah, I, I, I take Amy's point and, you know, she's been taking them for you know, many, many years and, um, you know, people do get um, intolerances and GI side effects from some of the meds. She talks about diabetes and skin cancers, but um, we haven't really, she said, developed something that gives you that anti-rejection without some of the intolerances or the side effects and, and she's right. And is there... A and she's also saying the money's not the investment in research hasn't been there to do it. I mean, is there drug development going on to try and make this better? It seems extraordinary because there are tens of thousands of Amy's throughout the world now. Yeah, but if you compare that to the global market for drug development in other climes, I mean, transplantation is a, a very niche sort of group of people. Um, it isn't. Um, like a, a cancer population or a cardiovascular drug where there's there's many, many more people. So we have developed drugs even in the time that I've been a consultant over the last 20 years. There have been new drugs that are very much focused in the early phase uh, and reducing rejection. Um, I was involved and we have been involved in late conversion studies to reduce cancer risk, but um, some of those drugs have got more intolerances even though they're better at reducing cancer risk. Can it can you change the way you give the drugs? I mean, for example, change the dose and take a little bit more risk with rejection? Um, you, you, want, you could theoretically, but, you know, we don't really have good mechanisms to see the immune system waking up as you pull back on immunosuppression, and that's the problem. Um, and we can't, we do, because we don't have good measures of biological effect, um, we, we're not very able to 
find that magic balance between preventing organ rejection, which is sort of paramount, versus side effects that occur long-term down the track. I mean, reading that piece by Ms. Orsin really tugs you. I mean, she's a good writer. She's an experienced writer. There's been a defensive reaction to the piece uh, from transplant doctors and surgeons, and, including Australia. I mean, we made a couple of calls to get people on the health report, and they were pretty angry about the piece. What do you think about that defensive reaction? Oh, look, I can understand why people don't want people don't want transplant recipients to stop taking the meds. I mean, we, we see that every year and then people get rejection and, and they develop antibodies to the organ and, and some of them become untransplantable because they've got so many antibodies. So I can understand some people's views about uh, not wanting people to reduce their immune expression because of a theoretical possible risk down the track. But I do understand Amy's point of view that it doesn't seem like we've made very many inroads in... Um, tailoring immunosuppression for people in the long term rather than the short term. Um, and just so we end on a happier note, I mean, the figures are quite extraordinary in terms of survival now when you've had a heart transplant. Yeah, and in fact, Australia um, is even, you know, in general better than the US. I mean, um, both in most organ groups, actually. So you're absolutely right. So I mean, Amy's fantastic that she's managed to survive 25 years. I mean, that's that really is a, a very long time for a, a cardiac transplant. And um, the longer you have immunosuppression, the more uh, the risk of developing malignancy. But yeah, um, it's sort of there has been in massive improvements in in function and survival because we've got better at treating infections and rejection and cardiovascular complications after transplant. And in the end, if you've got terminal heart failure, it's your only option. Yeah. Look, thank you very much for joining us and not being defensive about it. Okay, thank you for your time. Professor Robert Carroll is a transplant nephrologist at the University of Adelaide. Unless you've been hiding under a rock over the last year or so, you won't have missed the huge controversies over cosmetic surgery and the behaviour of some doctors who are not plastic surgeons, making large amounts of money while taking risks with their patients' health. The Medical Board of Australia and the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, APRA, commissioned an independent review. And one of the outcomes is a new rule from the 1st of July that people wanting an invasive cosmetic procedure will need a referral from their GP. This has perplexed some GPs as to how it might be workable, one of whom is Associate Professor Charlotte Hespe of the College of GPs. Thank you, Norman. Let's just start what I understand to be a bit of a myth about the referral from a GP. My understanding is that if you want to pay for it all by yourself and don't want to claim Medicare, you can actually turn up at a specialist's rooms yourself. It's really only if you want to be within the reimbursement system. Is that right? That's exactly right, Norman. The GPs are what we call the gatekeeper of the funding. We know that if GPs have a chat with people first, that they're much more likely to organise the appropriate referral into another level of healthcare. So if you do that, you actually save money to Medicare itself. But you as a patient, you can go and see whatever specialist you want to see, you just won't get a rebate from our national insurance system, which is Medicare. So that's where this system is different because this is mandating a referral. Well, we're not really sure how it's going to work. What it's saying is that in order for you to see a cosmetic proceduralist for particular procedures, you must see a GP for a referral first. 
And so I'm not all that sure how it will work or what sort of rules and regulations are going to be put in place to actually make that mandate even doable. So this is a mandate for cosmetic specialists other than plastic surgeons? My understanding is that there are certain procedures that the regulators are saying they want to make sure that patients are properly screened and appropriately referred before they actually have that procedure undertaken. So what they're saying is that these things cannot be done unless you've actually got a referral from a GP saying, yay, you can go ahead. And this is irrespective of whether you you can claim Medicare because for most cosmetic procedures you can't. Well, that's exactly right. There is no Medicare rebate for the vast majority of these procedures. So that's why I'm not all that sure how it's going to be regulated. And is it actually going to solve the problem that we're concerned about in the first place, that whole regulation of who is doing what? In terms of the announcements made to date, are any procedures specified? My research is coming up with that it's really those ones that are likely to have high levels of complications. So particularly invasive procedures rather than necessarily just, well, just in inverted commas, injections with dermal fillers, for instance. So this would be facelifts or breast procedures, some implants, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, tummy tucks and buttock surgeries, all of those surgeries that we know have high levels of complications when done by people that are not necessarily doing them in the right place or with the right skill set. Now, one of the problems GPs face is, even with regular referrals, is knowing who does a good job, whether it be cosmetic, whether it be gastroenterology or endocrinology, just knowing who is the best person to refer to when you've got a waiting room with 20 people in it, you've got 15 minutes with a patient and you've got to make those decisions. Is this just complicating that story or do you disagree with me that you're you're pretty good at knowing who's good and who's not? Oh, no, I agree with you 100%. You know, one of the things that I have conversations with people about is exactly that, finding the right person to do whatever it is that we're seeking either a second opinion on or actually a diagnosis and then a management plan. So I already need to know a large number of people across all specialties. I'm a bit cheeky here, Norman. I call my other specialist colleagues partialists um, because <laughs> their specialisation is they deal with a particular part. And say, for instance, if I'm referring someone for your eye, these days, you don't just look after the eye, you look after a little tiny part of the eye. So I have to really know who's going to look after the retina, who's going to look after the vitreous, who's going to look after the lens, not just who's looking after the eye. And in the same way with cosmetic procedures, Quite honestly, it is important that the person that you refer them to does that particular procedure a large number of times because we know if you do one very small thing, a lot of times you're obviously going to be a lot better at it and what has not been out there in the public space and what people have relied on is, you know, that sort of social media, let's put it out there, this is what I do, aren't I wonderful? And I think what we've learned is that that's not a good way to actually know whether someone is actually doing a good job. So how much is a GP at legal risk for the quality of care you get on referral? Unfortunately, we're at more risk than we should be. So if I send you to someone that I say can do a particular skill and then it goes wrong, medico-legally, I'm potentially up 
for being responsible for you having gone to that place or that's what's happened in the courts in the past. So essentially what you're saying that, first of all, there's a lot of detail to be filled in with the cosmetic referral, but the whole referral system needs review so that GPs can be more confident in the quality of care you're going to get when you're referred to a particular surgeon or physician or indeed cosmetic surgeon. What we need to do is have a better system of communication and understanding who are the experts and where we can actually make sure that people are put into what I call the right health pathway of care. I think that having the GP being the referrer is the right way to do it. We know if you look at health systems where GPs don't have this role, that they are not nearly as good at actually delivering good health. Assisting us in knowing who all of those people are and what their data is. How good are they? And how much can we trust them to do each of these different procedures? Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Associate Professor Charlotte Hesby is Head of General Practice and Primary Care Research at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney and is also Chair of the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners in New South Wales and the ACT. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.